I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Boy, do we have a great show lined up today on the Wong Takes. It is Tuesday, February 13th, 2018, and uh, got some good stuff on the docket. Two topics that might have been major topics uh, in their respective weeks, but we've got two of them. And we're going to start with something that a lot of people are invested in, being NBA fans, and that is the NBA trade line, but more specifically, the fact that Cleveland, the Cleveland Cavaliers did a lot of moves, and as such, in a callback to our third episode, we are saying it's chaos in Cleveland again. Uh, in the trade deadline, the Cavaliers made a bunch of moves with just a few hours left. They traded away, and this was all on the trade deadline day, they traded away Jay Crowder, Derek Rose, Amon Shumpert, Isaiah Thomas, Channing Frye, and Dwayne Wade in, re- in exchange in various trades. And other teams were involved in these deals, of course. They received George Hill, Rodney Hood, Jordan Clarkson, and Larry Nance Jr. Now, just on the basketball side of things. I think this is an interesting move. Uh, What this trade does is it sacrifices some of the starting lineup firepower and big names in exchange for some uh, names that people might be less familiar with or some names that can do some good on the bench. So you get some more depth from this trade. Uh, Like, for example, Isaiah Thomas uh, coming in after the trade with Boston was supposed to be the star point guard. He was supposed to be like the new, better Kyrie Irving, along with LeBron James. But now, you trade away Isaiah Thomas, and you put George Hill in number one on the depth chart at point guard. Obviously, still a uh, NBA-level, possibly starter, but not the same kind of shooting displays and firepower that you expected to get from Isaiah Thomas. However, this trade also uh, got, like I said, some depth. So, on the point guard position in particular, Jordan Clarkson... He can provide sparks. He, he's been uh, playing explosively for the Lakers, and he can bring that uh, to a Cleveland team that is already ha- loaded with talent. Uh, on the forward side of things, you lose Jay Crowder, who, like Isaiah Thomas, had kind of high expectations coming into Cleveland to be the tough guy uh, to work with LeBron James uh, when he started, and, or if he started, and kind of bring an edge to this Cleveland Cavaliers team. And you lose that. But... You trade that in for some depth, some explosiveness, uh, again from the Lakers in the form of Larry Nance Jr., who uh, I'm not sure, I don't think he's in the dunk contest, but he could be. I mean, he's powerful, he's big, uh, and he can do good for that lineup. Now, I think this is, in general, I think it's a good step for the Cavaliers because this is a really pragmatic move. This shows that the general manager of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Kobe Altman, this new guy coming in uh, for David Griffin over the summer, he's not afraid to get rid of big stars and big names in order to make the team actually better. Like, I talked a lot about the Isaiah Thomas move just now. It was greatly hyped and everything. But in the few times he showed up, uh, his effectiveness was very limited. Now, that's partly due to injury, but that could also be due to the system he's in, where he's not the number one guy, where he can't be a volume shooter. I know he wasn't really that in Boston, but he could have been that in Cleveland, like a J.R. Smith better. But his his touches were limited, and as, as a result, he wasn't as effective in the system. And I think Cleveland thought they recognized, or 
thought they saw something in that, that he was worth getting value in younger guys. Uh, another move that they made that got rid of a big name was trading away Dwayne Wade, which was kind of, I mean, people thought about it uh, like a little bit more when he was actually traded, like, oh, he's going to actually provide some, he might start a shooting at the, at the two or be a really good six man or something. But at the end of the day, it ended up just being like a sentimental move to kind of please LeBron to get LeBron and Wade back together because they're the best of friends. Um, but he was not, he did not play very well. He couldn't shoot uh, the three very well, which is what this Cavs team meant to do, either pull, bully ball down low or shoot the three. And he wasn't contributing in the way he could have, and so Altman recognized that it's worth getting a pick from this guy, which is what they did. Also, uh, Mon Shumpert and Channing Fry, who left the Cavs in these deals, they both have played big parts uh, on Cavs teams in the past, uh, hitting clutch threes in the playoffs and the NBA Finals. But they haven't done much this year. Uh, Shumpert's going 4.4 points per game. Fry's going 4.8 points per game. And Altman realizes this and is not just going to keep them just because Cavs fans have probably grown to know them over the years. They're some of the longer-tenured Cavs on this team, even though they're not, they haven't been there their whole careers. But nonetheless, they were traded away. And they get new guys that can bring some, bring something different to this team. Also, I thought the Isaiah Thomas and Jay Crowder uh, trade was particularly interesting, just given the lack of time they spent in Cavs uniforms. Uh, this trade shows that the Cavs viewed their upside as kind of limited. Like they, this was not the best we could have seen of them, but the best uh, that we could have seen of them was not good enough, and. They would rather take young guys than have these players who are established um, but maybe don't have the upside of guys like Clarkson uh, or Nance. And I think that's interesting uh, because like, you don't normally see these kinds of trades where you give away um, guys that you've seen play before and you have such a limited time to watch them do their thing before giving them away. But anyway, uh, I think Isaiah Thomas could still be an elite offensive player in, in his new home in Los Angeles. Um, this Lakers team that he's going to, uh, with, without Clarkson and Nance, they lose something, but they're still young. Uh, they still got a young coach in Luke Walton, and I have room to grow, and I think he can, he can flourish in that system. Although it is kind of ironic that he was on the Celtics just last year, and now he's on the Lakers. Unfortunately, the Lakers and Celtics don't play again this year, but those matchups will be fun to watch. Uh, I think another takeaway from this game, uh, or from this trade, these trades, was the Cavs trying to push their real long-term goal. Their only long-term goal, besides, of course, winning championships, is getting LeBron to stay there. There have been plenty of rumors about him going to the Warriors, uh, entering free agency, yada, yada, yada. Um, but they identified that he this was a problem, and this Cavs team was really aging. The, all these, Most of the guys they traded away, with the exception of Thomas and Crowder were older guys. And now they're younger and they have more potential to grow as a team, where they had kind of maybe hit their ceiling with the team that they had currently constructed. Um, and I think this this young roster, it's, it's going to re-energize the team a little bit. And as far as the chase for LeBron, uh, LeBron, he's still going to use his leverage that he has because he has a ton of leverage in those negotiations. He could make this team a lottery team, basically, by leaving. Uh, he's still going to shine those one in those one in one deals uh, where he can make as much money as possible and not commit. But maybe I think this this tr these trades may get him to sign on for next year. Maybe not the year after. Maybe they'll have to do some other moves or win a championship or something. But this helps him stay there for a little bit.
Uh, and of note, the Cavs blew out the Celtics in their first game with this new roster, and they seem more joyous uh, in the win, and that could be a sign of things to come. Maybe they their chemistry's improved, but then again, we won't really know the differences until this team goes to some turmoil because uh, they seem all fine. They seemed all fine this year when they were winning, and they started losing, and then you hear about the chemistry issues and breaking apart and all that stuff. And plus, Kevin Love is still here. In, or still there in Cleveland. And he's been the subject of a lot of those rumors. So the source of the talking might not be gone yet. Uh, and and it's curious to see what will happen when this team goes through a rough stretch. I think they'll survive. I think this team uh, can get pretty far, at least the Eastern Conference Finals, because we were even doubting that they could get there um, before, or they could win the Eastern Conference Finals before. But I think they'll get back to the Finals or, but I don't think they can they can win the championship as currently constructed against a team like the Warriors that has had time to gel and they haven't. So that's the NBA talk for this week, and our next topic is uh, hopefully something you guys have been watching, but it's Chloe Kim. Uh, in case you missed it, the Winter Olympics started in Pyeongchang, South Korea, on Thursday, and will continue until Sunday, February twenty fifth. Lots and lots of action. In between those dates. And there's already been some phenomenal storylines. Americans um, winning medals. Uh, the quote-unquote miracle on snow. A Norwegian fell in the, I think it was called the skiathlon. And came back and won. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable story. But I think one of the biggest stories, especially to us back home, is Chloe Kim. The American snowboarder who on Monday won the women's halfpipe handily with a top score of 98.25, which is out of 100. So that's pretty remarkable for an athlete. We're going to talk about why it's remarkable uh, for her. Uh, If you don't know Kim's story, her parents immigrated to the U.S. from South Korea, which actually makes for a fun storyline. She can snowboard for both her birth country, which is the United States, and also the Olympics this year in South Korea. So you kind of get to snowboard for her parents' country as well. She's Proud Korean American, she can kind of represent both, uh, and they'll be rooting for her as well. Uh, she was born and raised near LA, but she got on a snowboard at age four and was trained in Switzerland from eight to ten. So she's pretty intensive early on, and she actually qualified mathematically for the 2014 Sochi Olympics at age 13. Um, considering athletes work their whole lives to get to this point, she was only 13 and got there is crazy. But she was actually too young to go. Uh, the age limit, I think, for the Olympics is 15, so she had to wait until Pyeongchang and couldn't go to Sochi. And in between those times, she she's already won three X Games gold medals, which is an annual competition with all the best winter athletes in the world. And she got a perfect 100 at the U.S. Grand Prix in 2016, the first time it ever was done by a woman. Uh, of course, a 100 is subjective and subjective to the tricks of the time and everything, but just that she reached the pinnacle of her sport pretty much at that moment in time, is something not many athletes can say they did. So she is a young gun, she's only 17, and she dominated uh, the women's half-pipe, snowboard half-pipe at the Olympics. Her first run was a 93.75, which actually would have won the gold medal uh, by over, I think it was over three points. Uh, No other competitor in all three of their runs, they had three runs to put up the best score they could. None of the competitors in any of their three runs scored a 90. And on her very first run, out right out of the gate, when you usually reserve a little bit, she scored a 93.75. Uh, 
Uh, and she pulled off tricks easily that everyone else was struggling to do. Um, not that many people, especially the snowboarders that looked like they were trying to compete with her, uh, with the exception of maybe the Chinese snowboarder that came in second, no one else could really put together a run with the tricks that she was doing. Uh, everyone else was either having to play, they were trying to catch up to her because she set the bar so high right away, but they, they couldn't. And in her vac in her victory lap, she bested that 93.75 with a 98.25, like I said, and she did back-to-back -back 1080s, which is three full rotations in the air, something something never done by a woman in the Olympics. And her victory lap, it's it's cool that she gives the people what they want and does just just has fun, and she has fun better than anyone else appears to work. Like she, in her victory lap, she she had a, the highest score. By a pretty wide margin, and that's remarkable that she can do that uh, at this height of competition. This is a pinnacle of competition, and she just can have fun and goof off and and be better than everyone else. And like I said, she's just only she's 17 years old. Uh, she has the potential to dominate Olympics after Olympics after Olympics. Guys like Michael Phelps and Sean White, who have been doing it for years, not only at the X Games level but the Olympic level, and she has the potential to win medals uh, like nothing. Her, and her prior experience, because she's been in the limelight for a little while with her with multiple X Games under her belt, uh, she acts kind of like a savvy vet. Uh, like she already knows what she's doing. She doesn't seem too enveloped by the moment. She says she's nervous, but she doesn't look the part. Uh, and she she already is kind of a vet in some ways from her prior from what she's done. And she's only gonna mature and get better and stronger and be able to do bigger tricks. And I think she's going to break ground for women's snowboarding, not only uh, with new tricks and, and higher scores, but also just in the public conscience. I think American fans in particular enjoy having one athlete to gravitate to that can bring them to the sport, uh, that show greatness. Like those gymnasts, uh, Ali Raisman and Gabby Douglas and Simone Biles and them, that really brought attention to women's gymnastics. I think... Uh, Kim can do the same for Halfpipe, which is an event that many people in the people or in the extreme games community like, but not many mainstream sports fans. And I think that's pretty cool that she can bring some of that them to their her sport. Uh, she's also a relatable star that can kind of everyone can kind of appreciate. Um, I thought it was pretty funny that multiple times in between runs during the competitions. Uh, once in qualifiers and once in finals, she actually tweeted about food. Like yesterday, or two days ago, during qualifying, she said, quote, could be down for some ice cream right now, end quote. And then yesterday during the final, she said, quote, wish I finished my breakfast sandwich, but my stubborn self decided not to, and now I'm getting hangry, end quote. And those are both on Twitter in between her runs. Um, and just this nonchalance she has while she's dominating the field is kind of just amazing. Uh, normally athletes... They, like, I know a bunch of NBA athletes go on social media, like, they get to delete all their social media apps during the playoffs stuff because they got to lock in. But this girl's doing it in between her runs, and she's still coming out. And, like, she tweeted about uh, uh, breakfast sandwiches and then put up a 98. Like, who does that? Uh, and that can cause her to relate to a lot of fans because at the end of the day, she's just a teenager, and really she acts like it with the exception of, like, her remarkable handling of the press and all of that she's just a kid and she still goes to i think it's an online high school um and she still has to manage her day-to-day -day life and everything so 
she's kind of a, a star that people can can get used to and love. Uh, she also speaks three languages, French, English, and Korean, and is a proud American. And that's the typical American child of immigrant story. There's not a single American type. And it's kind of a nice message to bring in our political climate where she can inspire a lot of kids that um, maybe aren't as embedded into American culture that they can be American. And also she really seems to enjoy the moment. I think that's something that gets lost on a lot of athletes, particularly when you're competing at the Olympics or at a really, really high level, is to just enjoy what you're doing. And I think her personality, because she just eats it up, and she's going to get a lot of fans from, including me and many others on Twitter and everywhere else, uh, just from how she conducts herself. And it's nice to have an American star that you get to see them perform every year. It's not like the sports where you just see it once every four years, like cross-country skiing. You get to see her every year in the X Games. And I wouldn't be surprised if ratings for that event are up next year. Uh, There was a lot of attention on her coming in this year. She really lived up to the hype. And I look forward to watching her compete in the years to come. Okay, so we are, what, 17 minutes into the show? And now I've got kind of a niche, uh, not a niche thing. I think I kind of want to introduce y'all to a sport that I never thought I would have gotten into, which is cricket. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting, actually, because, I mean, unfortunately, the competition that I've been watching, which is the KFC Big Bash League in Australia, uh, it just ended. Uh, that was one of the few cricket domestic leagues that has international or that has American coverage. But if you want to look it up, the highlights are online, KFC Big Bash League. Um, I think this is an interesting sport, and I actually think that it has a place in America. It's, I think it's the second largest sport in the world. It has a place everywhere else, and I think America could learn to embrace it. But there are really a couple of major obstacles to it taking off, and I'll go into them now. Uh, first of all, just how to play the sport. A lot Most people still don't understand how the game works, and it can seem intimidating. It's kind of like how baseball would seem to a foreign observer, where you have all these numbers being thrown at you in diagrams and stats, and you don't know what they mean, and it's hard to break down to the untrained eye. And I think cricket is the same way. So let's just start by talking about the field. So first, uh, I want you to start by picturing a baseball diamond, and now get rid of all of the bases except for home plate and first base, and make them about 66 feet apart, or about two-thirds the distance between the bases in baseball. So you got those two, just those two things. For home plate and first base, everything else is gone. Now imagine the field not being a diamond, but an oval with those two bases at the center. Um, And actually, I think this is an interesting thing too. Uh, Like baseball, cricket grounds also vary... Uh, how like the how long essentially what we can call a home run is uh, from venue to venue like baseball. Uh, I think that that's there are a lot of similarities between the two sports. Um, now make the bases not like squares or pentagons or whatever, but just horizontal lines. So the line at which you have to cross this is a line you have to cross to be considered quote safe like we would say in baseball. So now you got those things, and now imagine behind those two lines where home plate and first base were on both sides are three stumps. And these things are called wickets. Wickets is a ter- Wicket is a term that gets thrown a lot around a lot in cricket in various forms that I'll try to explain as we go on uh, what those are. So now you've got the field. You've got this oval with the two wickets in the middle that are 66 feet apart with the lines to mark safe and yeah. Now let's talk about the gameplay. This is the part where most people get stuck. I'll do my best. So first you put, so imagine you got a lineup in cricket, just like in baseball, one through, in this case it's 11, there are 11 team or players per side. 
And now you put the two, instead of the first batsman coming up to bat, you put the two top batsmen, one at each wicket. So only one person is batting at a time, but there are two batsmen, and I'll call them batsmen, not batters, batsmen out there at a time. So now the bowler, who is the pitcher, equivalent of a pitcher in baseball, he's going to throw the ball from one of the sides. So one of the batsmen is going to be on one side, one's the other side, and he's going to throw it from the same side as where one of the batsmen is to the other batsman. And he's going to throw the ball. Usually it's a bounce, which is a typical stereotype of cricket. And now once the batsman on the other side hits it, the two guys have to run back and forth, crossing that line we talked about that's marked in the sand or the grass. They have to run back and forth as many times as possible, uh, which is pretty straightforward. And each time they run to the other side, that's one run. So as you can imagine, runs are much more abundant in cricket. And if they hit a home run, uh, or what we would call a home run, it's worth six runs, and a, what we would call a ground rule double, where it bounces and then hits the boundary line uh, that would be like the fence in baseball, is worth four runs, no matter if it crosses out or not. So if, as long as it hits that, it's worth four runs. Now, that's the runny, run part of it, but now what you're probably wondering what happened to balls and strikes. So there are no balls and strikes in cricket, but what there are are, and they're actually called the same thing, kind of, kind of, is outs. Now, there are multiple ways to get out in cricket, but let's talk about two of the ones that would, I guess, relate most to baseball. Uh, there are flyouts. So if you hit the ball and someone catches it on the fly, you are out. And if there's a ground out, uh, if, if a player, I guess we're not going to, it's not really a ground out, but let's say uh, a player hits the ball to a guy that's right near the wickets, and then the fielder picks up the ball and hits a wicket. Or he throws it to the catcher, which is called a wicket keeper in cricket, and then he hits the wicket before the player on the other side has reached the line. That's called an out, or that's that's also out. That would be like kind of like a ground out. Uh, those are two types of outs, and those are also called wickets in cricket. Like an out is a wicket, so yeah, you'll hear that around. And then also a strikeout, the equivalent of a baseball strikeout, would be a batsman swinging and missing, and then the ball hitting the wicket. Or uh, if the batsman stands in front of the wicket and misses. And it hits him, but it would have hit. It would have gone on to hit the wicket. That's the equivalent of a strikeout. Except it doesn't have to happen three times. It can happen once. It's pretty not. It's not too common in cricket, but that is the equivalent of a strikeout. So those are three ways to get out. There are other ways, but those are the three most common ones. Now, once someone gets out, so from one of those situations, then the next person in the lineup comes to bat for them, and the other batsman stays on. So let's say batsman one and two are hitting. Batsman one gets out. Now batsman three will take his place at that wicket, and then they will do the running back and forth and whatever. And then batsman two gets out, batsman four comes on, and now it's three and four, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now once once uh, a team gets ten outs, in other words, uh, you've gone through every batsman, you've gotten out every batsman in the lineup except for one, and there's no more that can come up, then that's th- that that team is done batting, and then they switch sides. And then each team batting once is called an innings, and it's always plural, which is kind of weird, but whatever. So that's the basics of cricket. So you got guys hitting the balls, trying to run back and forth as many times as possible, and then once all ten of them are out, they switch sides. Uh, normal, what's called test cricket, which is the long day of long time of cricket, which is five days, is two innings. Uh, their version we'll talk more about later. Um, so that's the gameplay. Those are the basics of cricket. You now know the basics of cricket. I hope hope you've understood it. it understood it. Sorry. Um, another obstacle to cricket taking off is people saying that it's boring. And I get it. I mean, cricket is a long game, but baseball is also a long game that has a similar action style to cricket where there's a pitch and then you hit the ball or you don't hit the ball and then stuff happens. And it, 
And unless you're going to a game, I think this is where we could actually enjoy cricket. Unless you're going to a game, you don't. When you're watching baseball, you don't intensely stare at the screen, watching for action at every single pitch. At least most people don't. I don't. Um, and it's a sport that is kind of, I guess, let's be honest, like in the background for most people. Like baseball is not. Unless you're watching like a postseason game or a really good game against a team you really hate. You're not staring at the screen all three hours, and that's the only thing you're doing. Like sometimes I do homework while I'm watching a game, or I do with a scorekeeping while I'm watching the game, or something like that. And I think cricket is the same way. Cricket is a sport that you could get into if you get invested in the teams and everything. But at the end of the day, when you're watching it just day to day, you can kind of have it on in the background while you're doing other stuff. And there's suspension on the pitch on every pitch, like in baseball. And there's and I think this could be more attractive to the casual fan than baseball. Because you got high run totals, there are runs being scored on like half of uh, of throws, half of the throws. So, and there are home runs being hit relatively commonly, and and uh, boundaries which are or fours, which are ground rule doubles, getting hit pretty commonly. Um, and I think it's it, it, it could draw more fans than we would think. And I think the type of cricket, because there are actually different types of cricket. It's not like baseball where there's one uniform game and you just change the number of innings. Uh, it's kind of like what cricket is. Um, but I think the type of cricket that could really take off in America is what's called 2020 cricket. Now, this version of the game, of cricket started play in 2003 and has really taken off since. Uh, and it's the type that I have seen played because it's only three hours long. Typical cricket test matches, which are the fancy schmancy one, they're only played by a select few countries in the last five days. And this is the type of cricket that's usually panned by Americans as boring. However, there is a market worldwide for shorter cricket. And as I said, 2020 lasts only about three hours a match, which is very similar to baseball. And that's why I think this type of cricket could really take off in America. And if you're wondering how they only make it three game, three hours long, uh, it does this by limiting the number of pitches per innings. So you can only throw 120 balls per innings. And you have to try to score as many runs as possible in that time frame. Now, you can look up more on the specifics later. It's called 2020 cricket. Uh, and I think it could really take off. Uh, and now... Also, what's another factor from preventing it from taking off is the state of American cricket, because uh, even though cricket relatively kind of thrives in America with those who are passionate about it, uh, it hasn't really taken off with the native, no, what's the name of it, people who are born in America, it hasn't taken off with them. Uh, there are supposedly 200,000 players in the U.S., and most of them are actually immigrants. So take, and I, I think, I don't want it to be this way, but I think truly getting cricket to take off in this country would take some kind of mix with baseball. Because, I mean, I can totally see, like, an American cricket that is the same setup as 2020 cricket, which takes three hours, but say you split that, there's only one innings in 2020 cricket. If you split that into three innings and make it more like baseball, but with still the cricket field and everything, I think uh, that could be kind of fun for, for teams. And this could definitely be successful if it's done right, because the Big Bash League, which is only in its seventh season, regularly draws crowds of 30,000 plus in Australia. And... This could really be successful, and cricket is an interesting sport. I would suggest you watch it. Uh, I think the Indian Premier League, which is a the best 2020 cricket domestically, starts in April. Um, NBCSN might have cricket. That's where they broadcast the Big Bash League, but I don't know if there's more. But anyway, I would suggest you look it up. It's an interesting sport. Just a little side note for today's episode. Uh, we got some quick shout-outs for this week. Uh, first, just shout-out. To St. John's University, who knocked off number one Villanova on the road, 79-75. And this has been the crazy season of college basketball so far. More teams, uh, AP top 10 teams, have been upset than, I think, in the, through this point in the season in the history of ever. 
And that's only going to make for a crazier championship week in March Madness, which is actually rapidly approaching. It's almost mid-March. It's, we're, we're a month away from the college basketball postseason, and it's, I'm so excited. A shout-out to Barry Bonds, who will have his number 25 retired by the Giants. Uh, despite the controversy, he is one of the best hitters of all time. It doesn't matter if you, if you take steroids if you can't hit the ball. He had to have some power to be able to hit the ball over the fence, and he's, his father was good, so he has the genes. It's just remarkable. Uh, and also shout-out to Jimmy Garoppolo, who is now the highest-paid player in NFL history, getting a huge contract from the 49ers long-term. And this record is going to continue to be shattered. Once Kirk Cousins get his de- gets his deal, this record is surely going to be broken again. As more and more quarterbacks hit the market, uh, this number of the highest-paid player and the largest contract will only continue to increase. All right, quick take. Uh, Lonzo Ball is out until after the All-Star break due to knee injury, Luke Walton says. Yeah, Lonzo Ball has been out for a while now for the Lakers. Uh, so at least this article says since January 13 and has missed the Lakers' last uh, 13 games. Lonzo's an interesting case study. Uh, with the addition, it, it was a lost season for the Lakers, but now with the addition, addition of Isaiah Thomas uh, and who's going to play point guard and everything, do you move Lonzo to the two? Uh, do you have him uh, rest and come off the bench behind Isaiah Thomas? Uh, this is going to be an interesting thing when he comes back. But I think this for the season, it looks like they almost want to... Sh- they're, they're, they've been shutting it down at least until the All-Star break. Uh, it might be a good way to... Ke- it might be a good thing if... Or if they keep him off the court for a little longer, then maybe he should. Because even though it's Los Angeles, it's a big market where everyone wants wants to see the stars, uh, you want to keep this guy as fresh as you want, as you can for the future, because you know he's going to end up re-signing with the Lakers, it's Lonzo Ball, so you don't have to worry about keeping him. You just worry, worry about not shortening his career and keeping his longevity. So it's good that he won't play in the Rising Stars Challenge or in the next couple of games, and I think they should keep him out for as long as they possibly can without creating too much rust so we don't have like a Markel Fultz situation. Uh, that was the quick take, and that was the long takes. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast as per usual. Don't forget to check out the long takes everywhere you check out podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, etc. All those links are on bit.ly slash the long takes along with full archives of the show. Every episode is up there. Patreon.com slash the long takes for all your Patreon needs. Email me the long takes at gmail.com to for questions, comments, anything, suggestions, whatever. Rate the podcast everywhere you rate podcasts. Uh, and subscribe. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I messed up that outro a little bit, but whatever. And I'll see you next week.